everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Got a news show for you this week. Uh, we got a few different things to catch you up on. A um, uh, quick summary here. We're going to be talking about uh, Apple, who just released iOS 11.14, I'm sorry, 11.4.1. And it's got a feature that was touted for its uh, iOS 12 release, which comes out in the fall, which they snuck in a little bit early. It's a security feature that uh, helps to lock down your phone and protect your privacy. Uh, though some experts are already saying that it can be easily defeated. We'll talk about what that means. Also, did you know that your laser printer could be tattling on you? Uh, it almost surely is, and I'll tell you what that means, and I'll tell you that there's also an app for that. Uh, if you use Venmo to send money to friends, it's uh, a little app that you can use to, to, to send money back and forth between people, kind of like text messaging, but with money. Uh, then you might be surprised to know that your transactions are probably available for anybody uh, to see on the web. You don't even have to be a Venmo user. I'll tell you about that and what you can do about it. Uh, we'll also talk about Google's got a new feature coming out that they're calling Confidential Email. Uh, it's a new service, uh, which is shockingly not very confidential. I'll tell you about that. And finally, we're going to talk about uh, health insurers who are working with data brokers, who we've talked about a lot uh, on this show. Uh, so they're getting together with data brokers to basically hoover up all sorts of information about you, which may be impacting your health insurance costs. And uh, of course, we'll talk about what you can do about all these things. Okay, so starting out, uh, Apple has has always been this kind of cat and mouse game with Apple. Apple is one of the few companies out there that really don't have your data as part of their business model. And as such, they do their best to make your data as private as possible and not share it any further than absolutely necessary while still trying to provide you some really cool features. Because let's face it, I mean, you know, the more they know about you, the more that they can do really cool things on your behalf. The problem is that a lot of the companies that are doing those kind of things are also using that data to make money off of you directly uh, by marketing stuff to you and selling that information to other people. Apple, at least from what we can see so far, uh, is not in that business. Uh, but they do need to, to use some of your information to, you know, bring some really cool features to you. Um, and that's the way it should be. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of great things we could be doing with all this data, as long as we keep it private, or at least as private as you want it to be, and understand where that data is going and how it's being used, and at least have some transparency and consent. Um, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, that's not the, that's not the case. Anyway, so as part of this, Apple... Uh, has gone to great lengths to secure your data. They, they encrypt your phone. They encrypt your phone's backups. They encrypt all the communications that your phone makes with the, with the, with the cloud. Um, they've gone to great lengths to try to protect your data. They try to anonymize you where possible. Uh, they've even got a kind of a cool feature where, you know, as you're walking around with your phone, as I've said in other episodes, your phone is constantly broadcasting, you know, to the cellular networks, to the Bluetooth networks, to... Uh, Wi-Fi networks trying to find other devices that it might want to talk to. As part of that process, it coughs up, you know, unique identifiers for your device. And if you wanted to listen for those device for those device identifiers, you could effectively track somebody or at least track their phone. Um, and Apple, you know, tries to randomize that data so that's not possible. So, ran so Apple goes to all sorts of lengths to try to protect your data. Um, but there's been sort of a cat and mouse game here with law enforcement and uh, intelligence agencies who want to get at that data um, to either try to solve crimes, which is, you know, a legitimate use for that, obviously. But in a lot of cases, it turns into mass surveillance. Um, and sometimes it's because the law really hasn't caught up yet, uh, there's a lot of cases where they might be able to access that information when there really shouldn't be. 
And there are companies out there who are doing their best to provide those services. There are forensic companies that say they can crack iPhones and get into your phone and get all that information out of there, even though Apple is trying to prevent that. So one of these devices called a gray, uh, let's see what it was called, a gray key, um, and another company called Elcomsoft are two of the big ones who basically work with law enforcement to say, if you give us a phone, we can crack it. Um, some of these devices work by plugging into the little lightning port on the bottom of your phone uh, and using that port to try to extract data from the phone. Uh, obviously, Apple tries to prevent that, but they supposedly found bugs or workarounds or, or backdoor. Well, not really backdoors. Backdoors implies that Apple put it there on purpose, uh, which they, as far as we know, certainly have not. Um, but finding ways around these security measures and finding ways to break them and finding bugs in them so they can still get at this data. Uh, and then they sell these services for high prices to law enforcement. Well, Apple has... Uh, just released uh, a new software update that purports to block this by kind of a clever idea, um, but it's got some trade-offs. And basically what they're doing is they is that if your phone is locked and has been locked for an hour, at least an hour, without any unlocking, it turns off the lightning port, at least the data part of the lightning port. So you can still charge your phone. But if you want to communicate with your phone and get data to it or from it, uh, that is blocked until you unlock your phone again. Uh, so this kind of, the idea being this, this blocks the efforts by some of these companies to plug in a, a special hacking device into that port, uh, to try to get data out. So Apple's basically saying after an hour that is shut off. So obviously there's some limitations. First of all, there's that whole hour thing, right? So, um, if your phone has just recently been unlocked and a police officer or a spy or a crook or whatever gets a hold of your phone, uh, and takes it from you, then your phone's not locked. Um, and even if it locks right away, it, this whole mechanism doesn't kick in for another hour. So there's that, uh, if, you know, so, but that's a convenience thing. Apple, you know, we're always making trade-offs between security and convenience. And so Apple has to walk this line. I mean, it can't, they don't want it to turn that off all the time. It's going to be a pain in the butt because if you want to sync your phone, you want to be able to plug in certain devices into your phone that need that data port. Um, so the, their compromise was, okay, well, if you haven't done anything for an hour, then we'll shut it off. But there's one more gotcha to this. And this is what this company is saying is they're calling it a bug. Um, but I think it's actually a feature. And what Elcomsoft is saying is that, and it's true, it's, Apple's doesn't deny this. If you plug in certain types of data devices into that lightning port, it will either reset the one hour timer or just prevent the timer from running at all if it's left plugged in. What that means practically is, is that if, um, if your phone has been unlocked within the last hour, and then let's say someone takes your phone and with the intention of trying to hack your phone, if they immediately plug in uh, one of these special de um, devices, which can be as cheap as 40 bucks into your phone, they've basically stopped this lockout procedure from happening. They're saying that's a bug. I'm saying it's a feature. Um, so it's actually a really cool feature, this whole lockdown thing. It's, it's, I think it's a really nice compromise in a way forward for helping you to protect your data and keep it from being, uh, you know, from prying eyes, basically. Um, and it's a good compromise. Um, yes, there are workarounds. Yes, there are ways to defeat it, but it's, you know, it's, it's not terribly practical. Um, also, uh, I think if you hit the power button five times, that evokes the emergency mode, which automatically turns this feature on as well. And by the way, it gives you a chance to call 911 if you need to. Um, but also, you know, so in other words, if you, if you feel your phone's about to be stolen, uh, by somebody who intends to hack it, you could press the power button five times quickly, uh, and it'll turn on this mode immediately. 
So anyway, just thought that was interesting. And again, it's all a cat and mouse game. It's all about trade-offs between security, privacy, and convenience. And uh, Apple's trying to walk that line and trying to help you out. Uh, and I think it's a great feature. Uh, you'll be getting it for free next time you up your, your phone if you haven't gotten it already. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's really cool. And I'm really happy to see Apple continuing to, uh, to raise the bar on this kind of stuff. All right. Now, did you know that if you have a color laser printer, that every time you print something off on that printer, there's a secret code embedded on those pages. Now, you may have known this if you watch any sort of police shows that talk about forensics or things like that. Um, and basically, this started out a long time ago. It was a deal that color laser printer manufacturers made with the Secret Service uh, who are in charge of anti-counterfeiting efforts. I don't know why that falls to the Secret Service and not the Treasury Department, but it does. So... Um, I don't, know, I don't know when this was worked out, but a long time ago, they said, well, these color printers are really good. So we want to work with these printer manufacturers to make sure that people aren't, you know, using them to print really good looking fake money. And uh, what they worked out with some system, and it, apparently it's not a single system. There are a few different ways they do this, but they print very tiny little yellow dots on, on the on a printed page. And because they're yellow, this is only a color printer thing. Because again, it was originally for counterfeiting. And black and white, they didn't care about. Um, and the, they print this little matrix of yellow dots and repeat it across your page. And to the naked eye, it's basically invisible. Uh, I guess, you, I haven't tried this myself, but apparently if you take a very bright blue light, like, you know, you can find blue LEDs now and turn out the lights, turn on this bright blue light, and you look at the page, you might be able to see these little dots. Uh, also, if you took a printed page and then scanned it at a high color resolution, uh, you could actually blow it up in like a Photoshop or something like that. And you might be able to see these dots, especially if you turn off uh, the green and uh, the green and red channels and only look at the blue channel. Uh, these yellow dots should stick out. And basically, you know, these dots are in a little matrix form. And, and depending on where the dots are and where they aren't, uh, it'll tell you things like the date and the time it was printed and the, and some information about the computer, or I'm sorry, information about the printer that it was printed on. So the idea originally was to catch counterfeiters. Uh, of course, it can be used for many other purposes, and law enforcement has also used it to track down um, whistleblowers and leakers who print documents off on work computers to try to sneak them out and then figure out, oh, well, <laughs> we, we, you know, we got a hold of this print. And if you were, even if you scanned the print, those dots are still there, right? So if you, even if you printed it and then scanned the print and emailed that print to like a, a newspaper or something, this actually happened in the last couple of years. I forget the exact case. Um, but they, they had leaked, they took some documents from work, leaked them to the press because they felt that that was the right thing to do. The press published them and then they were, and then the, the people whose information they leaked, I believe this was a government, the U.S. government, was able to take those images, find the dots, figure out which printer it was, when it was printed. Uh, so they find out, like, okay, well, this printer was in this building on this floor uh, next to this person that was printed this time. And it wasn't too hard at that point to figure out who did the printing. Because um, I'm sure there's also all sorts of IT logs about when things get printed and things like that, too. So they were able to track down the leaker very quickly. So... It's good to know that these dots exist. If you are ever going to try to whistleblow or do something on a printer where you don't want to be tracked, you need to know that those dots exist. So either go black and white, um, or you can do what these researchers have done. These researchers, and the reason I'm telling you about this today, uh, these researchers came up with an, an app, and it's not just a simple app. Unfortunately, you, just, you can download and put it on your computer. You have to know some a little bit of Python. You have to be able to work at the terminal. 
Um, but it's pretty straightforward. Um, you can download this code. Uh, and if you have a scanned image, uh, the code will look at the scanned image and try to find the dots and tell you what's there. So there's that part. Uh, but it will also try to obfuscate those dots. And it could do it one of two ways. It could either um, try to erase the dots in the clear areas where you, that's where you'd kind of see them anyway, like the parts where there are no text. Um, and try to just you know, erase the dots in the, in the scanned version of the printout. Uh, or put in a lot of extra dots and basically make it impossible to read the original code. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Mostly because I don't think a lot of people realize that color laser printers are doing this. Um, and now if you're interested, you can go check out this uh, website. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, and you can play around with this app and see if you can find you know, what your printer might be doing. And see if you can uh, see if you can erase those dots. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This is actually a type of steganography, hiding in plain sight. Um, so this is another instance of uh, a code that's right there and looking you straight in the eyes, but you're not seeing it unless you know what to look for. All right, next up, let's talk about Venmo. Um, you may or may not have heard of Venmo. If you've heard of PayPal, uh, which owns Venmo, uh, it's a you know it's kind of like a private payment service. It's PayPal was originally used for on eBay as a way for people to pay each other online without having to go through a bank and all those things because most of the transactions were small. Uh, PayPal became a huge company bought by eBay and then sold off by eBay. Uh, and then now that everyone's using smartphones for everything, what you want to do if you're at dinner and you want to, you're with a bunch of friends, and you want to split the bill or uh, you owe somebody a little bit of money. That's not an even amount of, you know, like it's not an even 20 or something. It's some odd amount. And you want to be able to send that to them easily without having to break out actual physical bills and coins, or maybe they're not right next to you and you still need to pay them. Uh, you can use this app called Venmo. And it's kind of like a social media slash payment thing where you can kind of text money to people and they keep track of your accounts in the background and they debit it from your account and they give it to the other person's account. And of course, you know, eventually somehow that links up with the bank account so you can actually get the physical money. Well, uh, it's a very popular app for, for, for paying for a lot of small things. Uh, unfortunately, they're really not that big on security, apparently. Uh, let me read you a little bit of this article from, uh, from the Naked Security blog, which is run by Sophos. Um, let me just read from this. To its fans, Venmo is a hassle-free P2P app that allowed, that lets anyone living in the U.S. send money to friends, split a restaurant bill, pay for a ride on Uber, or buy a hotel room. And by the way, P2P is peer-to-peer. -peer. If you owe someone a small sum of money or just want to pay an odd amount without going to an ATM, you could do that using Venmo in a matter of seconds as long as the recipient is willing to join too. This convenience, coupled with its ownership by PayPal or by payments giant PayPal, has helped it attract 7 million users who in 2017 shifted a reported $18 billion. Did we mention that transactions not involving a credit card are free? If this is starting to sound like an advert, it's time to mention a quirk that some might find a bit harder to swallow. Transactions conducted through Venmo appear to be public by default. This doesn't include the dollar amounts, but does show who sent something to whom. The service does offer a setting which makes transactions private to all but a user's friends, but it isn't on by default, and it seems a lot of people never turn this on. We know this because a privacy campaigner has conducted an analysis that underlines how easy it is to find out about the lives of Venmo users simply by peering closely at the data from its public API for 2017. And API, by the way, is an application programming interface. Uh, so it's kind of a way for computers to talk to other computers. So, all right, back to the article. According to the researcher, this includes first and last names, profile picture, the time of the transaction, the message, and more. She's able to troll the API and for from a total of 207 million 
984,218 transactions managed to spot a cannabis dealer in California who took payments 920 times in 2017. She also pieced together love affairs and arguments from the public messages sent between Venmo users, Venmo users and analyzed the eating habits of one woman who washed down 209 pizzas with 280 transactions for Coca-Cola all in one year. By the time you read about the couple who used the service to pay for their dog dog's vet bills, refuel their car at a Chevron gas station every fortnight as they drive to eat Asian food or shop at Walmart, paranoia starts to set in. Extraordinarily, this data isn't only available to other Venmo users, but to anyone. So why, you ask, is a service designed this way? The answer almost certainly has to do with the service's original design as part payment system and part social network. It isn't that privacy was forgotten by Venmo so much as it being seen as besides the point. It's as if Venmo thinks its users want friends to see with whom they're transacting. The service is open about this design, and although it's also possible that many users don't realize how public their, their use of the service is to anyone with the time and inclination to look. If you want to adjust your Venmo privacy, this can be achieved by logging into the website and changing the global settings as set out in these instructions. And I'll send you, I'll put a link to this in the show notes. It also appears to be possible to hide past payments by navigating to the app's settings, then privacy, then set past transactions to private, a change that is permanent and can't be undone. All right, so that was reading again from a, uh, the, the Naked Security blog. It's a great blog from Sophos. So if you use Venmo and you have not gone in to explicitly set your settings to be private, then anybody with a little time and effort can go and find out what all your transactions were. So I highly recommend if you use Venmo or plan to use Venmo that you set your settings to private um, and maybe even go back and do that setting that sets all your past transactions to private as well. All right, next up. Google has a new service coming out called Confidential Email. Um, and as the EFF explores in one of their articles, it's really not terribly confidential. So uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just realize that if you see this advertised with Google, it's, it's not as good as it seems. And most of these things usually aren't. So it's basically a proprietary confidential mode. Uh, I believe you probably would have to use it all between Google users. So... Uh, I would think this would only work uh, when both parties are using Gmail. Uh, but it allows you supposedly to block forwarding of those messages, block printing, printing of these messages, and even set an expiration date on messages uh, so that they can only be read for a certain amount of time. However, like any of these services that purport to do this, and I know Snapchat and some of these other, um, oh crap, there was another one that, Wicker, I think it was Wicker. There are, there are certain apps that proclaim that, you know, the messages... Uh, are private, they can be deleted, they only last a certain amount of time, they can't be printed, yada, yada, yada. You can't really believe any of that stuff. It's anybody, if it could be read by somebody at the other end, all they have to do is take a picture of it, and it's saved, right? There, there's Even if the underlying you know message that's stored on the server is deleted, and it's deleted from their phone, and all these other things, if it can be read by somebody, then it can be captured by that same person in some way. Uh, that can cannot be defeated. So keep that in mind. Also, the other thing to realize is that it's, it'll stay in your sent folder probably as well. Um, just because it's expired on the other end doesn't mean it hasn't expired on your end. And finally, this stuff is not encrypted end to end, at least not currently. The way the, the way Google's offering the service, Google can always, <laughs> always still read your mail. Uh, so it might be confidential in the sense that no one but you and the recipient can see it, and it might disappear in the sense that the recipient can no longer read it on their devices. 
but Google will still have a copy of that and it will last forever and they can read it. So it's kind of misleading. Just realize that when these kind of features come up to always take it with a grain of salt uh, and realize that, <laughs> again, it's, it's like digital rights management, DRM, and I, which we talked about at length with Cory Doctorow um, from the EFF. It's just kind of a self-defeating thing. If you can only control the use of these things so far. Uh, but it's eventually, if it can be consumed by somebody, then it can be recorded by somebody as well. All right, last up. Uh, this probably won't come as a surprise once I read it to you, but it's probably something you hadn't really thought much about. Um, we talk a lot about data brokers uh, on this podcast, companies whose sole purpose is to gather up, hoover up as much information about as many individuals as possible, put those together into dossiers and files, uh, derive as much information based on that as possible, and then turn around and sell that information to marketers and now, honestly, anybody who's willing to pay. Um, so it shouldn't be any surprise that her health insurers uh, may be wanting to look at some of this data to find out more about you and prospective clients to find out who might be really expensive to insure. Um, the laws right now are a little shady on this. They're not supposed to be using this kind of data to set prices. Uh, that doesn't mean they still can't do some kind of shady things to still tilt the scales in their favor in terms of avoiding people who might be a lot more expensive to insure. Uh, so let me read this article. It's from ProPublica. They, uh, these guys do some really great investigative journalism, and uh, they've got a really good article on this. I recommend you read the whole thing, uh, but I'm just going to read you part of it here just to give you a, a flavor, some excerpts um, to give you a flavor of what this is all about. With little public scrutiny, the health insurance industry has joined forces with data brokers to vacuum up personal details about hundreds of millions of Americans, including, odds are, many readers of this story. The companies are tracking your race, education level, TV habits, marital status, net worth. They're collecting what you post on social media, whether you're behind on your bills, what you order online. They then feed this information into complicated computer algorithms that spit out predictions about how much your health care could cost them. Are you a woman who recently changed your name? You could be newly married and have a pricey pregnancy pending. Or maybe you're stressed and anxious from a recent divorce. That too, the computer models predict, may run up your medical bills. Are you a woman who's purchased plus-size clothing? You're considered at risk of depression. Mental health can be expensive. Low income and a minority, that means, the data brokers say, you are more likely to have a, live in a dilapidated and dangerous neighborhood, increasing your health risks. The industry has a history of boosting profits by signing up healthy people and finding ways to avoid sick people, called cherry-picking and lemon-dropping, experts say. Among the classic examples, a company was accused of putting its enrollment office on the third floor of a building without an elevator, so only healthy patients could make the trek to sign up. Another tried to appeal to spry seniors by holding square dances. So I'll skip ahead a little bit. There's This guy's at a conference. Where, um, uh, the guy writing this article there was at a conference with health insurers and data brokers, um, and they're all talking about you know things that they're doing and services they're offering. And one of the big ones is called LexisNexis. Um, and so let me continue the article with that background. The LexisNexis booth was emblazoned with the slogan, Data, Insight, Action. The company says it uses 442 non-medical personal attributes to predict a person's medical costs. 
Its cache includes more than 78 billion records from more than 10,000 public and proprietary sources, including people's cell phone numbers, criminal records, bankruptcies, property records, neighborhood safety, and more. The information is used to predict patients' health risks and costs in eight areas, including how often they are likely to visit emergency rooms, their total cost, their pharmacy costs, their motivation to stay healthy, and their stress levels. Okay, so what a lot of these companies are saying, and they said to the author of this article, is that this is all public information. All we're doing is it's already there. It's not It's not hidden. Uh, we're just collating it, basically, and correlating it. Uh, that is probably true. Um, I'm sure a lot of the data they're also getting is uh, not public in the sense we might think it's public. It's your social media data, uh, the posts that you've made on Twitter, things you've posted on Facebook. Um, while technically public, people don't often think of that as something that you know, other companies can just go and download whatever they want for their own purposes, but they do. And they're taking all this data and they're cross-correlating it with, you know, where you live, trying to figure out what your income levels are, you know, how many people are in your family, or if you're married or divorced, um, how many kids you have, and all this other information, and trying to extrapolate that data and to figure out how expensive are you to insure from a health perspective. And while currently uh, the law seems to be saying that you're not allowed to make choices based on that, as we saw with the, the examples of putting, putting the, the, uh, the sign-up office on the third floor without an elevator or, you know, trying to sign up the people for your health care that are probably more healthy than others, which means they'll be cheaper to insure. Uh, there's other things they can do to kind of put their thumb on the scales to make things go in their favor. Um, and honestly, in the current climate of this administration, these kind of regulations are being gutted left and right. And it, it would not would not be much of a stretch to think that these kind of things are going to come into play and be perfectly legal uh, to do so to affect what your health insurance costs are uh, in the near future. And, you know, the, as I kind of said earlier in this program, this data that we are generating, all of us are generating and leaving a trail of data like exhaust everywhere we go um, constantly, 24-7. And this data can be used for great purposes. Uh, we could do some really cool stuff with this data. Uh, it's stuff that benefits you directly. Uh, the question is, who has access to that data and what else might they use that for? And that's just the first question. There's many, <laughs> there are many other questions we have to answer. Uh, as we generate all this data, data has a life has a life cycle. You know, at some point it becomes stale. And, and you know, at what point you know was the fact that I smoked ten years ago but quit uh, affect me here today? Or you know, maybe I had a run in with uh, some uh, depression at uh, some point in the past and in that past. Or maybe maybe the data is wrong. Maybe I was looking up something for a family member or looking up for somebody else. But that search is associated with me because I was the one who typed it into Google. Um, there, what if the what if the data is wrong? What if somehow they're in their correlation, they pick somebody else named Carrie Parker uh, and, and associate that data with them? I actually ran into this when I was living in Texas. There was another person who lived very near me with my exact name, a different middle name, but the same first and last name. Uh, and I'd run into places. I'd go into places and they'd start talking to me about something. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And they then they check like an address or a date of birth or something and find it's different. Like, oh, that's the wrong Carrie Parker. Um, so, you know, what if they've, what if they've merged your data with somebody else who happens to have a similar name or the same name as you do, or the same nickname you do, or something like that? Um, it happens all the time. And this data is not being policed for that. 
And there are no laws and regulations, at least in the United States, about making that data transparent to you so that you can know what they know about you and have the opportunity to review and correct that data. Now, um, and this leads us to my tip of the week. So um, what I'd like to suggest you do uh, for your tip of the week, because transparency and awareness is, is the key, it's the first step to all these processes, we need to understand what data has been collected and, and, and who has it, and uh, just, just to get an idea to some sense of what's going on and, and just to be more aware of these things. So what I'm going to suggest you do in the article that I just read you from, uh, read from, uh, suggests this as well, is you can write to LexisNexis and say, I want you to send me everything you have on me. Now it's called a full data disclosure, uh, but be aware that it's not, it, it might be voluminous. <laughs> they probably will send you a lot. I think the, I think the author said his report was like over a hundred pages long. So it'll be, it will be a lot of data because it probably goes back you know, 15, 20 years potentially, but realize that it, they don't legally have to give you everything they have on you. And what they'll probably give you is the raw data and not necessarily all the things that they have inferred from that data. Uh, but you'll see. Um, I think one of the things he said when he was reading through it, there was, there were spaces on there for bits of data that were blank, which means that they probably have that filled in on their end, but they weren't going to tell you. But regardless, um, I think it's important that we understand what's really going on here. So my tip of the week, and I'll put the link in the show notes. If you go to LexisNexis.com, you could probably just search there for accessing your full file disclosure, but you could also go to the website called PersonalReports.LexisNexis.com. And that's L-E-X-I-S-N-E-X-I-S. That's how you spell LexisNexis. And again, I'll put this link in the show notes. uh, So you can just go there and click on it. Uh, and you had to fill out a form and you had to mail it in through snail mail and it'll probably take a while to get back, but I think it's just worthwhile. Just give it a shot, find out what they, what information they have on you. You might be surprised. And, uh, again, awareness is the first step. So that's our tip of the week. Um, spread the word, tell your friends as well. We've got to get at least to the point where people are aware what's going on. And because until we're informed, we can't start making policy decisions and we don't, we, you know, we don't know what to, what to ask for. We don't know what needs to be done. So anyway, that's, that's a, that's a tip of the week. That's our show. Uh, tune in next week. I'll hopefully have another uh, great interview line for, uh, lined up for you next week. And, uh, until then, as always stay safe and don't get caught with your garbage.